Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you desire to make us more into your image. You have chosen us as your people. You have showered your love on us. And you're desiring more and more of our hearts. And so, God, I pray that you would use your word today to do just that. That, Spirit, you would be working this text into our heart, into the places that, in the areas of sin that we don't even know exist yet. And that you would use this in ways to um, pull us out of sinful habits. That you would expose areas that need to be changed. People that we need to uh, mend relationships with. And that the church would be built up and strengthened and encouraged because of your spirit working through your word. God, I pray that today you would uh, give us alertness. You would help us to uh, be able to listen and to follow, that you would be with me to speak um, clearly, logically, and that my um, the words that I say would make sense and people would be able to clearly understand and follow it uh, so that you would receive glory and your spirit would be able to work uh, in better fashion. Although we know uh, the sovereignty of God and we trust your spirit will work when uh, it chooses to work in hearts that are malleable. So for this we pray and to this we bring you glory for what you will do through your word in our lives. We pray this because of Christ. Amen. Do you remember when you were a kid and people would always come up to you and ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? People still ask me that question today. Um, Kids, do do you have people that do that to you? Come up and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Maybe it was a question. All right, got one child over there. So they would ask us this as kids, you know, asking what do we think we wanted to be. And for us, for me as a child, this was my time to shine. You know, I have uh, a crazy imagination. Am I cutting out? Okay. Uh, I have a crazy imagination. And so for me, the, the, I mean, the sky is the limit based upon what I want to be that day. Uh, I, I always wanted to be a firefighter for the longest time. I wanted to be a medical doctor until I was cut with the reality that you have to be really smart, go to school for a really long time, and it's really expensive. And not that any of those things couldn't have happened if God chose to, but um, my hopes and dreams were dashed when I found that out. And uh, so then I went to Bible college. And... <clears throat> So anyway, our imagination, we began as children thinking about the future, where God is leading, what we want to do plays a big part in it. Uh, our parents play a big part in that, what they're doing, uh, influences around us, our family, friends of our family. Uh, these things all influence us as children. Uh, and we think that the future is something that is very exciting. It's unknown. It's mysterious. And so children are often looking forward to the future. And adults as well. Adults maybe have a little bit more realistic approach to the future, however. Uh, We know what life is more like than children as they see it on TV or in movies and uh, in their imagination. And so we look forward to the future. But the future and looking into it causes us to start planning when we look into the future. Does it not? If a child wants to be a fighter fighter pilot... 
he has to now know what does it take to become one and what are the steps that I have to go through to do that. And so he begins to plan and he looks forward to the time when he can. uh, I don't know what it takes to become a fighter pilot. I don't even know if that terminology exists anymore. Probably not. But nonetheless, it's a cool job, I'm sure. And but he has to now look forward to getting a pilot's license Once he gets that pilot's license, he looks forward to the first time he's on a solo flight. Then he looks forward to whatever the next step is after that. And then, you know, getting into some school in the military, I'm sure. And and whatever the process is, he's looking forward to that next step. Just like you remember when, you know, you were younger and you looked forward to college. And when you're in college, you, you look forward to finding someone, getting married and having children getting into a career and getting settled down. And then before we know it, we're on death's door, wondering where has our life gone? Because all my life I looked forward to what was next. And I kept looking forward to the future and what the future had in store for me. This is our topic for today. And I know that you're excited you came because we're talking about death's door it's not exactly our topic of death but it is about the future and thinking about the future versus thinking eternally thinking having a eternal perspective we've been looking through james in the past couple sermons especially in chapter four here he's he's talking about interpersonal conflict what causes these quarrels among other believers He refers to passions of envy and greed that are within us, that are quarreling within ourselves because we don't want to do it, and yet we do it. And these passions, uh, this envy and this greed spill out and it causes quarrels with other believers. We struggle with worldliness. We give in to worldliness. And then God gives grace. He poses the proud, gives grace to the humble, gives greater grace. There's repentance. And yet we still struggle and we judge one another. And inevitably our judging, as we looked at last week, is actually a contradiction of the gospel because we're judging the God of the gospel. And now today, we look at verses 13 through 17, and we will read them. And we see that our passions and our worldliness leads us to dwell on future things that force us to plan. The problem is we plan for the future, forgetting we are redeemed people who ought to be living for eternity. So let's go ahead and read our text, and then we'll jump right in. James chapter 4. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
We're going to look at two points, two main ideas here from this text. The first being the arrogance of planning apart from God. Keep in mind that this discussion, these points are under the idea of uh, planning for future and planning for eternity and how those are at odds with one another. So the first point is the arrogance of planning apart from God. James opens and he says, come now you who say. There's no beloved brothers this week. Instead, he opens in a sharp manner saying, come now. We would readily identify with this uh, when we would talk to a friend and we would say, or a group of people, and we would say, come on guys, don't do that. Or we would be sharp with someone or uh, brusque with them and, and shoulder them into it and say, yeah, that's not right guys, come on, let's think about this. There's that idea here where he is saying, come on now, you who are saying this. Are these people who are saying this believers? It seems like, as I study this, that it would be the case that they are believers. James so far has been writing to believers who are scattered in the dispersion. He refers to them over and over again as brothers. My dearly beloved brothers. And so even though he's talking sharply, it's still, he's still referring to brothers. We've seen him talk, talk to these people. Um, he called them adulterers, adulteresses, sorry, earlier in chapter 4. So there's a point in where he's talking sharply, but he's still referring to believers. So let's keep that in our mind as these people who are speaking this way of being believers. So this idea that they are saying today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town. We're going to do this. We're going to have a job. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to trade and make profit. That's not something that we would probably typically do in our day. But in James's day, this is readily understandable. Because if you hadn't yet made it, if you're not living in a country estate, sitting in your Adirondack chair, sipping on sweet tea, or an Arnold Palmer would be my drink of choice, sweet tea, lemonade. Uh, if you're not doing that, chances are likely you're falling into this category of people who are wanting to do that. They're wanting to be those who are sitting back, having it easy, sending out people, making them money. And so these people are completely understanding the fact that you have a skill, you make furniture, or you make something, and you don't have the internet to sell it on. You don't have websites where you can just put it up there, post it, and it can be sold. You have to actually go out and set up a little booth and be a vendor. And with transportation the way it was in those days, you can't just zip back and forth commuting either. So you're there for a long time because you want to make a good profit. And so you might move your whole family out there and say, we're going to go into this port city and we're going to stay here for a year. Maybe you have family there, maybe not. And we're going to stay here for a year and we're going to make a profit. And with that profit, we're going to come back and we're going to have enough to buy us a house or to buy us something and kind of put us up for a while. So we're not always having to go back and forth. That's the idea is, is these people are wanting to set themselves up financially. James doesn't condemn their practice. He doesn't say, what you're thinking about doing is wrong. Don't do that. He's saying, come on now, what are you, what are you guys thinking? You're, here you're wanting to do this. Let's think about this. We can readily understand their mentality. 
We see salesmen who are boasting in their abilities, wanting to make X amount of dollars a year, and you go and buy the car, and they're telling you how, where they're going on vacation, what they're doing, and you know, and it sounds all very luxurious, and we get caught up in the idea of, yeah, if I can just get this certain job, and I can work there for so many years, then I'll be able to retire, and we'll do well, and such and such, and be able to put ourselves up nicely. So we understand their mentality. We we think this is this is fair. I mean, we want to eat. We got to put food on the table. And chances are likely that all these people aren't just greedy, climb the ladder businessmen. They're probably families, middle class families, who are wanting to consistently put bread on the table. James is not condemning their practice. Let's be clear. He never says your practice of wanting to do this is sin. What does he say is sin? So we're in verse 13. Let's also look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You boast in your arrogance. The arrogance of planning apart from God. You are boasting in this, and that is evil. The next verse says, So the one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Evil is always evil. So when these people are being arrogant, as James will say, and they're boasting in that about the fact, we're going to go and do this, and it's going to work out just like this, and this is how much we're going to make, and we're going to come back, and this is exactly how it's going to go. Arrogant. And you are boasting in that, and that is evil. Actually, it is sin. I mean, if he stopped at evil, we would understand the weight he's putting on there. This is sin. What you are wanting to do is okay. But the attitude that you're having regarding it is sin. Why is this sin to want to go in and have a plan? I mean, if you don't plan to fail, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. That's right. Something like that. There's a phrase. It makes a lot of sense when you get it right. Um, But it's a good idea to have a plan, right? I mean, we want to think through things. We want to think through what are the problems that might be that might arise. Uh, We want to be smart about this. We want to be discerning. However, there's a huge problem here. These are redeemed people. And they are quarreling and judging with one another, probably because they are fixed on my plan, my profit, my trade, a year. It's all set. We're going today or tomorrow into such and such a town. And there's no mention of God. And seeking those things that are above. James states, this is boasting in your arrogance and it is evil. It is arrogant for redeemed people to plan apart from God because A, it is not our life to plan. It's arrogant for us to plan and do this that James is saying these people are saying because it is not our life to plan. Let's read Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live... But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
It is Christ who lives in me. My life is no longer my own. I have been redeemed. I've been bought. I now belong to my taskmaster. I belong to the one who redeemed me. So when I try to plan my life, it's like a prisoner who is shackled to the wall saying, Hey, tomorrow I'm going to go have lunch at this place. I'm going to meet up with this guy. We're going to hang out. We're going to talk. And then we're going to you know, go watch a football game. And then I'm going to go home. Dude, you are shackled to the wall. You're not going anywhere. Yeah, no, I got this plan. You're shackled to the wall. Our life is not our own. For those of us who believe and cling to the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, being applied to our account and nothing other than grace, it is not your life to plan. You know, we think sometimes like my freedom has been taken away when someone says that. I want to plan. All, I shouldn't say all. I am a planner. So when it comes to vacation is months away, a couple weeks away, I plan. I like to plan. I think that is very comforting for me to somewhat know we're going to go to this town. This sounds real familiar to James 4. We're going to go to this town. We're going to stay there a week. And we're going to do this or that, and we're going to have fun, right? And we're going to, you know, there's these things that we're going to see. And so I want to plan because I want to know what I'm getting into, and I want to know what it's going to be like. And I think that that's smart. And in no way is James at all saying planning is bad. If you walk out and you say, oh, planning is bad, let's, let's not do it. Let's cut off all insurance. Let's just live like you know, we want to. And Doug Isaacson would have a heart attack. And, and the rest of you would be walking out of here saying the exact opposite that I'm saying. And James is saying, he is not at all condemning planning. He is condemning your attitude towards planning. And what your perspective is. Imagine how awkward it would be if you made an appointment with a financial planner. You show up at the guy's office, or gal, show up at their office, and I'm sitting in in the chair across from the financial planner at their desk. We have all your financial documents out. I'm picking life insurance for you. Uh, I'm looking at 401ks and IRAs and and I'm deciding how aggressive I think you should be and and I'm choosing I'm planning out your financial portfolio and you walk into the office secretary lets you in and you look at us you notice what we're doing you know who we're talking about and then we look at you as though you're the odd man out that would be really awkward for you to come in and see someone else trying to plan your life to get where we're going with this, and yet we who have been redeemed, Christ is our life, and yet we say, yeah, got that, but there's one area I'm not, I really am not ready to let go of yet. Like he's forgot, or he's not exactly in control of that. God is our creator, redeemer, and sustainer, and yet every day, maybe, we sin by planning his life in us. So as redeemed people, this hits me harder than just, well, I need to stop planning, or if I plan, I need to pray about it. We can call this mentality arrogance, idolatry, worldliness, whatever it is, it's loving something else other than God. 
because we're choosing at this moment to love my wealth, my portfolio, uh, my family, uh, what my kids will eat, or whatever it is you're planning apart from God, you're loving that more than you are the one who redeemed you. What ways do we sin by planning apart from God? We've kind of already touched on this, but finances, money, retirement, don't kill the dead horse, right? This is the example James is using. And he's brought up rich and poor in other times in this book. And actually next week when we begin chapter 5, Tim has a glorious duty of preaching uh, against the wealthy in chapter 5, 1 through 6. Money is just a universal problem. Money is one of the areas that all of us probably hold on to, want to control, or have issue um, regarding sinning over more than anything else. In planning a budget or 401k, that's not wrong. Again, James is not saying that's wrong. But do you pray about those things? Maybe you have where your paycheck, your business um, matches whatever you put in and it comes out of your check automatically. Do you think about that? Do you think about how much is coming out that you want to get matched? Well, if I put the more, the more you put in, the more they match. That's a great, it's a great program. You're getting free money. But do you think about, well, if I put that much in, that means less out of my check and that's less that I really see as like income and less that I have to give or be generous with or save for other reasons. Do we think about that stuff? Some of us that don't have, or those that don't have 401ks or have to worry about this kind of thing. Do you think about saving for retirement to where it's sin just in your thinking and planning it, even though you're not able at this time to put back for it and you worry about it? Are you frugal or stingy with your money because of your budget? Or because of retirement? A, f- a person who is looking only at the future says, I'm going to work here for 40 years, I'm going to make this much money, and then we're going to retire. And my house by then will be paid off, and we'll do such and such. I mean, that's what the world wants, right? I mean, that's what we live for. That's the American dream. You come in, and you can either own your own business, or you can get a great job, have a house, have a family, a nice cul-de-sac, you pay it off and you can retire. And then that last 10 or 15 years when you can barely walk and you can't really drive because it's suspended, that's like your golden years, right? Right. That's what we're working for so hard. That's what I am telling Christ I don't trust Him with, is those years. Nothing against retirement years. If you can retire, this is an excursion, if you can retire and do it to the glory of God, where you say, this is how much I get in. I mean, it's set. Like, that's what you saved for 40 or 50 years of working. Glory to God that you could work that long and that you could be allowed to put back money. That's, that's amazing. And that God has freed you from not needing to work right now and is paying your financial bills. That is a gift from God. And so you say, God, I want to use this to your glory, and I, I don't want to be consumed with this money. I don't want to be planning it right now. How can I serve the body? What can I do with what you're giving me and the extra time that maybe I have right now? And talking with someone about this text, they were saying that their neighbor actually in doing ministry says he's more busy now while he's retired than he was before. What a testimony that God would use 
someone who the world would say, you're in your golden years. You go play golf. Just join a country club and relax and enjoy the good life. And they're like, you know what? I, have no, I don't need an income, and I'm going I'm to do all I can for the glory of God. An eternal perspective says, Jesus, I can't wait till you return. What a glorious day that will be. All I have is yours. So tell me how long I should work, how much I should give to the church, and how much I should save so I can serve you until we meet face to face. Now the reality is, because you're all wondering, well, the dude who's sinking a turtle, his, his accounts are going to be at nil. No, the reality is that that guy who is looking at his finances in, with an eternal perspective, and he is planning in light of God and God's glory, realizing I'm redeemed, so I need to look at everything that I have in my life as God's, hold my hands out open with my money, just because it's all his. That guy, it could be that God says, I want you to put back this much. And his mind's... I mean, God gives him peace and his wife about that and other uh, financial advisors say this much would bring you in this much when you retire. And it could be that that money is the exact same as his fellow co-worker who's looking just to have good time in the golden years. It could be that that's the case. In no way am I saying that just because you plan in light of the sovereignty of God for your retirement or for your children's education or whatever else it is, that you're going to have nothing when you turn 65. Uh, That's not the case. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that this is between a believer who Christ is their life and their Redeemer. Let's go to Luke 12. Luke 12, 18 through 20. This is the perspective of someone who is merely wanting, planning, like the guys, gals, families, in James 4. Luke twelve eighteen. I might want to read the verse before. Verse 16, let's start up in 16. And he told them a parable, this is Jesus, and he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we sin in planning apart from God. I think one of the greatest areas we do that is with our finances, our money. Second, I think, is also the will of God. When we're discerning what is God's will for us, I think we can often sin in planning apart from God. We might say, you know, I'm praying about this, or I want to seek God's will for this. And so we spend money on books, and we we read and we ask people, what is God's will? What do you think God's will for me is? Should I go to school A or school B? Should I marry boy A or boy B? Like, that's a choice. You know, marry the one that will marry you. 
should I do this or where should I work? What should I buy? I have, I have money. I want to buy a car. What, should, what kind of car should I get? I want, I want to know God's will. I don't want to get a car that's too expensive and it straps me for cash. And, and yet I don't want one that's going to die on me in three years. And so I, what do I do? And so we're seeking what is God's will. And we have all these questions and we run to consumer reports or we run to the Internet to find out what is the best car, which is wise. And yet how often are we just saying, God, what I need is more of you. What I need is to know you. I don't care about money. I don't care how much this car is more than the other one. What car is it that you want me to have? Or, I mean, that's a great scenario. Most of us probably are not in that scenario. Like, we got just have money, we can pick whatever car we want. Probably not the case. But God, what do you want with my life? Because I just want to be yours. It's a completely different perspective than looking at life just based on um, my plan and what I, where I would like to be in 10 years. But instead of looking at it saying, it's not about 10 years. It could be about tomorrow. Tomorrow, I could be called into eternity. James is going to get there. Not making that up. Let's go to Matthew 6. We're going to turn a little bit. Matthew 6. Actually, I can read it if you don't want to go there. Matthew 6 is the Lord's Prayer. And I think it's helpful for us to read this, seeing when we're looking for God's will or what God would have us to do, things that are pressing on us. This is how God answers, this is how you should pray. Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. What are their empty phrases? Verse 8. Do not be like them, Gentiles, for your Father knows you have need before you ask Him. That's the empty phrases the Gentiles are heaping up, is these needs, your Father already knows them, so don't heap them up. Just They're going to be empty, if they're empty words, don't be like that. But pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You notice that it's your kingdom, your will be done. The only thing that Jesus in the prayer is saying for a material want or desire need is give us our daily bread. Give us the food that we need to eat today. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. What a difference the life of someone who is living in light of eternity and how they view planning, finances, and the will of God is than someone who is merely viewing or looking for the future. I think we're starting to see the difference there, the future versus eternity. Not only is it arrogant to plan apart from God, because it is not our life to plan, but James also says that it's arrogant because we are not promised tomorrow. 
We are not promised tomorrow. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. This is Psalm 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. It is arrogant for us to plan by ourselves, apart from God, because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And by making self-confident plans, we show our foolishness in thinking that we are omniscient. Do you remember the guy in the Old Testament named Abraham? It's kind of important. Abraham knew God's will for him was to be uh, the father of a great nation. God comes to him, makes a covenant, and says, you're going to father a great nation, and your offspring is going to be greater in number than the stars in the sky. That's awesome. God, there's a problem. My wife cannot have children. I mean, that's a big problem if we're going to have offspring that number more than the stars in the heavens. God says, you're, this is going to happen. Years go by. It doesn't happen. What happens? Abraham and Sarah take it upon themselves to say, maybe God forgot. You know, let's just go ahead and work this out. And he has a child with somebody else. Because for him, he's being arrogant and thinking that I know how to fulfill this. God has not taken care of the situation. And although he doesn't say it, Abraham probably thinks that he's more knowing what he should do and how the problem could be solved than God would. James doesn't even give us any kind of credit. He doesn't say, 10 years from now, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, that would, be, that would be, hey, thanks, man. In all reality, I don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now. He doesn't even say that. James says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So not only are you a nobody who doesn't know anything, has no ability to do anything at all regarding your planning, you don't even know what tomorrow, like hours from now, you don't know what's going to happen. So good luck trying to say, hey, today or tomorrow we're going to go in such and such town, live here for a year and make a profit. Because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You see how idolatrous and prideful it is for us to assume that we know not only what's going to happen tomorrow, but just in this illustration that James gives, what these, these people, how prideful they're being, saying, in a year or so from now, we're going to be in this city, we're going to be making a profit, and then you know, it's, we're going to trade and spend a year there. And we're going to do this today or tomorrow. And James is like, you don't even know what's coming tomorrow. How arrogant that we are thinking that uh, we know what's coming The last reason it is arrogant for us to plan apart from God is that we are incapable of carrying out that plan. So we plan a life that is not our own. Arrogant. We plan not knowing what tomorrow is going to hold. Prideful. Arrogant. And even though we know that, we plan... And yet we're incapable of even carrying out the plan. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is the next logical step of not being able to carry out the plan. Because if we cannot know what tomorrow will bring, how can we ever hope to control 
the unknown event to complete our plan. So event happens tomorrow. That a car breaks down on a holiday and there's no one here. And you have to be in said town that you're going to, to check into said hotel. That's the only one that has an opening. I mean, this is all hypothetical, obviously, right? To have an interview by tomorrow to get the job to start on Tuesday. But car breaks down. You didn't know the car was going to break down. And if you did, you might have been able to order a part online and fixed it before it broke down so that you could have controlled the situation and your plan go through. That would have worked. But you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And if we are not omniscient, that means you know everything. We're not. If we are not teenagers, you're not. If we are not omniscient, then we cannot be sovereign. The two go hand in hand. For one to be sovereign, in control, able to uh, control and have power to do anything, for that to happen, that person has to be omniscient. Because if you're omniscient and you know everything, but you don't have the power to do anything about it, you're not God. If you have all power to do anything you want, and yet you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, not God. Just a big goon who can beat everybody up. So we're not omniscient. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Therefore, that automatically means we don't have the ability to control the event that's going to happen tomorrow. I hope that makes sense. Basically, we're just getting at the idea again and again, it is arrogant. It is prideful for us to plan for us to set our course of life apart from God. So how's that for humbling you? Aren't you glad you came? So the one who does know everything, though, is also the all-powerful creator. And that makes him infinitely more able to control all things. The reality for us is that we are a mist. We are a puff of smoke, literally. We don't know what tomorrow will hold, and a mist has no power to do anything about it, even if he did know what was happening. And the mist, the puff of smoke, is fleeting, has no ability to plan. Psalm 102.3 states the same, For my days pass away like smoke. Not exactly words of power and words of you know, able to carry out a plan. So we are a mist that is fleeting. And yet we're trying to control the events to not only sustain life, but to sustain it in the way that we think it should happen. Not only are we smoke, vapor, a mist, but the prophet Hosea in Hosea 6.4 states that our love is like a morning mist. And like the dew that goes away early. And then two verses later in verse 6. So we're a mist, we're fleeting, so is our love. It's like dew, the morning mist. Verse 6. I desire, this is God, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. But that's obviously a problem. Because I'm a mist, I'm a, uh, I said, I was going to say spring, I'm a mist, dew, a puff of smoke. 
I'm not lasting very long. I don't really have any ability to do anything. And I just found out in Hosea 6, 4, my love is the same. It's a mist. It goes away early. And yet God is saying, I don't, I don't want you to have, like, I don't, don't sacrifice and do burnt offerings. I want steadfast love. We whose life is God's and who don't know tomorrow and are a mist. We're so busy with stuff and planning out our lives in every area that we can think of. And yet God knows we'll never know it all and we'll never be able to control it even if we did. And all he wants is your steadfast love. How many times does it say in scripture, 10 Ten times it says in Scripture, Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and strength, or mind. That's the greatest commandment. Why is that the greatest commandment? If we're filled and we have steadfast love for God, I'm not one who's going to be sitting there worrying about my 401k. I'm not worrying about my child uh, and their education or I mean, listen, listen to the whole thing before you like write this off, okay? Because I'm not worrying about that because I have steadfast love for the one who is the only one who can do anything about it. So I trust Graham to God. I trust my wife to God. And I have steadfast love for him. And if he chooses out of his goodness to me to say this or that, poor house, you know, country villa, whatever the case is. And he says, this is how I want you to serve and glorify me. Taking something, giving something. We sing it all the time. He gives and takes away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. We're on to the second point at least. So if it is sin... To plan apart from God, and it is, it's arrogance, arrogance is evil, and this is sin. If it's sin to plan apart from God, and being so focused on this world in a future sense, more than we are on the eternal things, what do we do? We just alluded to loving God, steadfast love. I think in this text, we see James is saying God desires dependence on his sovereignty. So it's arrogant for us to plan apart from God. That's what we're doing. God, however, desires dependence on his sovereignty. God's sovereignty, the word sovereignty, sovereign, is power and control. Like a king, he's a sovereign. He has all power, all control over everything in his realm. Since God's the creator, Never had a beginning. His realm is everything. Isaiah fourteen twenty four. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Also in Isaiah six ten, My counsel, this is God, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all of my purpose. God is completely sovereign. This is the complete opposite of what we were just called. 
We don't know tomorrow. And we are a mist or a vapor that quickly disappears. Depending on God's sovereignty is actually believing He controls all things and that His will will be accomplished. Because if I depend on His sovereignty, that's more than just an intellectual fact. If I am depending on God's sovereignty, trusting that if He chooses to do something, Good or bad, He's sovereign. He can. He is God. If I depend on that, I'm actually trusting that God controls all things and that His will will be accomplished. And if I truly believe that with all my heart, I will pursue knowing God more and I will draw near to Him and He will draw near to me. And that's steadfast love. That is steadfast love. So when we say, God desires steadfast love, but your love is fleeting. Our dependence on God's sovereignty, our drawing near to Him, as James tells us to do earlier in the text, is steadfast love. I think there are three results that are naturally produced in us as we depend on God's sovereignty. So believer, when you are depending completely on the sovereignty of God, I think three things will naturally flow from that. First, James says, instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James writes, and he's giving a scenario, and he's saying, for those of you who are saying, we're going to do this, this, and this, what are you talking about? You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears and then vanishes. Instead of saying, we're going to do this, this, and this, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. So naturally flowing from someone who is completely dependent on the sovereignty of God is a mindset of, if the Lord wills. Whether you speak it or you think it, This is a ready acceptance that my planning is completely subject to the sovereignty of God. I think it wise to plan. I think that is showing discernment. Uh, There are parables where uh, there are those who are given much and much is required. So when I speak, if the Lord wills, And I believe it. It's not just a trite saying. But I believe it. It's ready acceptance that what happens, according to my planning, whether my plan fails or my plan goes through, like I thought God is wanting it to go, and that's why we planned it that way. It's all subject to God's will. James is not against planning. We've said that. But he and the rest of Scripture are against a this-world-only focus that involves amassing wealth and planning apart from God. People at work are not going to understand a mentality of, I'm not really planning for my retirement. or I'm not, like, That's not my focus. I have three guys who are around me at work. And they're the ones that I probably see the most. And they're all in their mid-50s. And so mid-50s means uh, kids are out of the house and it's just you and your spouse and retirement is 
evidently to them on the forefront. And like one guy has it down to months and it's like 13 years away. So this is a a ready illustration for people, especially as we get older, retirement becomes more of a, you know, you really got to start thinking about that. Because when you're 25, you got like 40 years. Nobody does anything that's 40 years away. I mean, term life insurance, you're like, nah, not yet. I'm 25. What do I need life insurance for? The kids come, you get 30, you start to like breathe heavier when you run and start to feel aches and you're like, term life insurance might be a pretty good idea. What's a 401k? What does that mean? But the people at work, the people you talk with at the water cooler, they're not going to understand this. Your blog friends, they don't know why you're saying and having a kingdom perspective regarding finances. To them, you get money, you spend it, or you save it for later. They don't understand giving to someone in need. So having a mindset of if the Lord wills flows naturally, I think, from depending on God's sovereignty, steadfast love for God. So some of you might need to change your vocab. You might need to include include this phrase, if the Lord wills, for the reason of having that constant reminder of saying it. If the Lord wills, we will do this. However, just like when we pray for me, and I always end a prayer in Jesus' name, when I'm not thinking about it, it can become a trite phrase. That same can happen with if the Lord wills. Just typing out an email and you actually just saved it as your signature on Gmail. And it just it pops up every time because oh, I mean it. And you never look at it, right? Also, in regards to last week, don't judge someone. Well, they said if the Lord wills. Better yeah, I used to say, they said if the Lord wills. <laughs> they don't really mean it. I know what they do with their money, or I know how they act, or what they say. They don't mean that. Or, you didn't say it. Don't judge one another based on whether you're saying it or not. And actually, I think a good test for us to see if we actually are believing the phrase is to read Luke 12, 22 through 34. Luke 12, 22 through 34. This actually follows up right after the parable that we read about the guy who builds bigger barns. And God says, This night your soul is required of you the things you prepared. Who wills, whose will they be? This is following up right after that. And Jesus said to his disciples, Luke 12, 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They know neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small of a thing as that, a single hour to your life, small. If you can't even do that, 
Why are you so anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If, if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are about to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. I love, I love this language in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 34, always convicting. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we can say, if the Lord wills. But if we really mean it, we're living like this. We're not worrying about what we're wearing or how, what we have, where we're going to get food, where we're, what we're going to do financially. We're seeking God's kingdom. The second result of depending on God's sovereignty is that we're humble, not arrogant. When we believe ourselves to be merely a vapor, puff of smoke, it should cause us to cling to the eternal God. Submitting to his will and purpose. Humility is not saying, all right, God, this puff of smoke down here has got a 40 year plan and I'd like a rubber stamp so we can get this through to processing. That's not humility. It's absurd. Yet, isn't it that how we are about our family, our career or retirement? We get mad when our plan doesn't work. And the economy fails. Our house is now worth half what it was. Our 401k is a joke. And we know we can't get mad towards God. So what? We take it on our spouse, our boss, people at church, the mortgage company. And now there's quarrels and fights among you. Because we're worldly. Because we are having these passions for what? For envy, for greed. And we're not repenting. And so, cycle back again. We're cycling back through chapter 4. However, when we truly are depending on God's sovereignty, knowing that that is trust growing in God, and that trust is evidenced by one who is pursuing Him, and loving Him, and desiring to... uh, uh, What does James say? Draw near to God. Sorry. Draw near to God and God draw near to me and there's steadfast love growing. When that happens, we're humble in regards to our plan, the life's plan God has for us. Humility trusts God. It does not think that God forgot about us, like Abraham. It doesn't think he forgot about us, and so we've got to kind of help him out. James four six and four ten. I've already gone through these verses earlier um, this month. 
last month. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. God gives grace to the humble. And then verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. That's what we're wanting with our planning is exaltation. Success. God is saying, humble yourselves before me and I will exalt you. It is my pleasure to give you the kingdom. So that's the second result. Humble, not arrogant. Third result of depending on God's sovereignty is that we are doing what we know to be right. This is verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The opposite of that is the one who knows to do the right thing and does it. This is similar to what James has been saying a couple of times already in this book when he says uh, it's not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. Reminds me of chapter 2, verse 14. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and you don't give them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You saw a need, you know of a need, and you don't do what you know you should do? James is saying later, that's sin. So why does he say here, knowing instead of hearing? Because otherwise, other places in James he said, So don't only be a hearer of the word, but a doer. And here he says, so who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it. I think it's because by now we've heard and we know what we're supposed to do. We know when a brother or sister is naked and poor and in need of daily clothing or food, that we're supposed to give them something. Because the one who doesn't, what good is that? If we just say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, what good is that? When we depend on the sovereignty of God, we're not viewing our wealth or our monies or whatever it is we have and saying, I've got to manage it really well because this is all I've got. When we know what is right to do, brother or sister needing something, I mean, he's not like saying, you know, they, they need a better car than the one they have. He's not giving a superficial need. I mean, you know, teenagers, I need that new game. It just came out. I need it. That's not what he's saying. He is saying if they have an actual need, something that in Luke 12, he said he will provide. If they have an actual need, you know what's right to do, and it's to provide it, if you can. God has given it to you, dependence on His sovereignty. We do what we know to be right. We are a vapor, transient, beggar. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And yet God has told us from his word, if the Lord wills, is how we should respond. If the Lord wills, so the one who knows to do right, fails to do it, to him it is sin. Our boasting, when we plan, is sin. 
So, brothers and sisters of grace and truth, let us pursue steadfast love. Let us, instead of being arrogant in our planning and in our trying to control the events of our life, rather let us seek to depend on the sovereignty of God, knowing that utter dependence on that is steadfast love of the one who has redeemed us. So we want to study how to live as redeemed people. It's dependence on the sovereignty of God. And there's great implications for that and beautiful fruit that comes from it. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you that your word does not give us superficial three-step process of do this and you'll have this. Instead, you call us to a relationship with you. I don't know what greater joy there could be for someone who knows our transient nature, who knows how worthless we are apart from Christ. Someone who understands what we really are in our sinful nature apart from Christ. And to hear that God wants a relationship with us, that should be greater to us than gold and silver, than the greatest retirement package created. That should be better, more enjoyable, something we pursue more than the other fancies and pleasures that are so often covering our eyes and clouding our heart. So God, I pray that you by your spirit would take this text and work it into our lives over and over again. We're going to fall. We're going to judge our brothers. We're going to judge you. We're going to judge your law. And then we're going to be planning and being selfish and arrogant in the way we plan. We're going to forget that it's all, if the Lord wills, dependent on your sovereignty. But God gives greater grace. So we pray for grace where there is absolutely no reward, where there is no um, need for it. We don't deserve grace, and yet we are seeking for grace. We beg for grace. So God, I pray that through your text, by your Spirit, you would keep us humble, lavishing in grace, steadfast love, dependence on your sovereignty, all those being one and the same. It's you we're after. And I pray that you would work this into our lives today through community groups as we talk with one another, as the ladies meet tomorrow, that God would work this in us so the body is strengthened and encouraged and you are glorified. We pray this because of Christ. Amen.